Thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. On this episode, we're going to talk about the latest ninth Doctor box set from Big Finish, Travel in Hope. I'm Mark. I'm delighted to be joined today by Melvin. Uh, hello out there. And Joe. Hello, hello, hello. So, Joe, you joined us on Trap One a couple of years ago to discuss the first few ninth Doctor sets that were released when Eccleston first signed up for Audio Adventures. Have you been keeping up with the series since then? Yes and no, with an emphasis on the no. <laughs> um, because since we started that, I've started a Big Finish podcast where we've been going through like all of the early stuff. So I've basically been focusing on that for the last year and a half to two years. But I did listen to the set Old Friends, which had a two-part Sideman story on it, which was one of the best things I've heard from Big Finish in a long, long time. And the one part as well, the one set at the funeral, that was really fantastic too. And I'm happy to report, I thought all three stories in this box set were brilliant as well. So I don't know what's happened in between. I've been sort of reading the Doctor Who magazine reviews and they've been generally quite positive, usually sort of selecting one story per set saying, this is the best one yet. Um, But I actually thought this was a, a, a solid run. So what was the last set we did, you and I? The second one. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Was that uh, Respond to All Calls, maybe? The one with that fabulous science fiction one at the end. Do you remember? Where, where the Doctor turns into a tree. Yeah. That's, that's what it is, because that's one that Ross and I did. Yeah, there was like a bunny and a giant robot. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, that, that was a really nice set. I think, uh, you know, we talked about Ravages, the first set. Wasn't a great start, and then since then they've they've mostly been really fantastic stories. Oh, I'll say, I did actually go back and listen to that Ravages episode that we recorded, and I've got to say, you and uh, James gave a, a very brave um, crit- a, appraisal of that. Whilst I was just there taking the piss out of it the whole time, so thank you so much for putting up with me because I was really naughty on that one. I promise I'm going to try and be very good on this. I just You mentioned your Big Finish podcast. Just let the listeners know what that's called and where to find it if they haven't heard it. Oh, we've spent ages trying to think up a name for it. And we went for the very imaginatively titled Finish Big, which <laughs> if anyone has heard me podcast before, I do like an innuendo or two. So it felt very, it felt perfect. Um, yeah, and that's that's been going for about a year now. It's really developed quite a nice audience now. And yeah, we're, we're sort of running our way through all of early Big Finish with little instant finishes that we do for selected sets that have come out recently. We did like Intelligence for War from the third Doctor set recently. And we have also embarked on all of the once and futures. And I'll leave that there. And Melvin, it was you in particular that enjoyed this set so much that you, you wanted to talk about it on the podcast? Yes, very, very badly. Uh, uh, also, you know, we can, we can all like, you know, get out of the way that Ravagers is not very good. Uh, I actually recently re-listened to the Ravagers uh, Trap 1 episode and just sort of winced and grimaced when you said that you bought the vinyl of it. I'm like, man, of <laughs> yeah. all of the Ninth Doctor audios to buy the vinyl of, I'm like, I just felt... How I much was like, that? I dread to think how much that cost. It's a couple of years ago now, I can't remember, but oh. it's probably about £35, something like oh, that. Oh, Mark. Yeah. It's a limited <laughs> yeah. edition, though. There's only a 1,000. There's a I, reason for that. Yeah, I just, sort of shook, I just sort of shook my head and like felt bad for you in private uh, as I was walking the dog. But, you know, uh, 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 I have really, inv- since that set, uh, again, it was just, I, I, I suppose they just wanted to get something out. So that's fine, whatever. Eccleston seemed to have a good time. Uh, neither here nor there, both here and there, is that since then, you know, every single set 
that Eccleston has done has just gone from strength to strength. You know, I, I haven't really kept up with the, the Doctor Who magazine appraisals, but there is generally one story per set where you're like, yeah, they just raised the bar again. And I don't know whether, you know, I don't know how they apportion or assign these scripts uh, or these stories for the Eccleston boxes, but it really feels like every single time they're bringing a material for him to do. Um, I know I've heard a lot of, you know, just a sort of sort of brief overview. I know I hear a lot of sort of complaints and rumblings on Twitter, which I mean, that's what Twitter is. I mean, that's what it is. Uh, they'll complain literally about anything. Um, that now this that the, the the ninth doctor isn't the ninth doctor from TV. That he doesn't have PTSD. And I'm like, what is it? Like, what do you people? Why do you want that? Have you not watched the Eccleston season recently? There's like five total minutes of that it's like the the when everyone talks about uh, uh or gets on martha's case and i'm like i know it's because you're racist but if you have to say it's because she's pining for the doctor again there are literally about in the entire season about five minutes of that uh and it doesn't detract from the story it doesn't make martha a worse companion and the same thing with eccleston like most of the time he's like you know that gif where he's dancing at the end of the world uh mm-hmm. He's like happy-go-lucky. He'll turn on a dime. He's making stupid dad jokes. Like this is a very marked doctor, as far as I can tell. Uh, and I think Big Finish leans into it. And the other part of it is that Eccleston is joyous in every single episode he does. He the energy is like he's on TV. Like th- there's no, I mean, this is a cast leader. This is a guy who is coming in and like setting the tone. And he is, you know, I will tell you right now that there are Sylvester McCoy audios that I've heard where you can tell he is reading the script for <laughs> yes. the first time. And Eccleston... <laughs> That's every other Sylvester McCoy yes. story, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll stop pontificating. Joe, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, no, I, I was just going to say, because uh, I had a chat with Rob Valentine a couple of weeks ago who wrote one of the stories on this set. And he said on the interview that Christopher Eccleston came to these audios with conditions. And one of those conditions was he wanted to play it differently from the TV. Um, he that Basically, the idea is that the, the, the trauma of the time war and all of this stuff is so fresh that he's not confronting any of it. He's sort of just pushing it to one side. I'll deal with that later. And he really insisted that, um, that he wanted to just have joyful fun to be a sort of character that's rooting for people and someone that just really enjoys traveling around the universe. What I would say to those people on Twitter is, is unless we accede to Christopher Eccleston's demands, Christopher Eccleston is not going to make Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So let's write what he wants. You know? <laughs> yep. And the result, and the result of those conditions, uh, which I, I, you know, I think I'd heard something to that effect, but um, the result of that is the work, the work is of such consistent, and high quality, you know, not only the performances, but again, the scripts are, these are some, the, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it, you can heap praise all you want and it gets to the point where it may seem meaningless to people, but I feel like this is a range that I will not let go of. You know, I've said before on other podcasts that I've had to, especially since the overseas costs have gone up in the last sort of year, year and a half, like I'm buying less new or pre-ordering less new big finish than I used to, but the ninth doctor is one I will not give up mostly, you know, again, cause I know, you know, Eccleston, I, I, it's bankable at this point because again, the scripts are of high quality. The performances are great. I don't know how they get the cast, the actors, like uh, we were mentioning before the, before we got started that the pairings, that the lead pairings in these stories are really good. And two of them, 
I, I don't think, well, one of them has never been in Big Finish before. That's the first story, Kelly Adams. And the second one, um, Emma Swan, has been in maybe two before. So these are actors who are co-leads with Eccleston that have never done this before. So, you know, how, whatever the combination of magic that they've, that they've got here, it's, it's working. And trust me, we'll get on to Jane Goddard in the third yes. story, who is obviously a big Finnish veteran. She's been playing. I just heard her as Jerry Packer in Bang Bang a Boom last week. You know, she's been playing characters in Big Finish for years and years and years. But boy, oh boy, she has defined that role of Alpha Centauri now. She is absolutely brilliant. Can I just say about about this set as well? One of my big complaints these days is with the main range no longer existing, is there is a lack of diversity. So when you get a set of Big Finish now, it's usually around a theme. Like this is called Traveling Hope, yeah? So I went in thinking, oh, okay, so there's going to be three sort of similar stories. What I got was three completely disparate stories. Um, a very small scale, or well, ultimately big scale, but small scale drama with basically two characters in it. Then, uh, like a murder mystery, a really fun murder mystery story, and then a hilarious sort of um, political satire for the last one, and they couldn't have felt more different in tone. So, I feel as if I mean I only made that criticism on something I put out last week. So I feel as like Big Finish has listened, gone back in time, and decided to redress <laughs> that already. But it's so nice that they can still do it because that was a nice thing about the main range was that you could have a bang bang a boom and a jubilee and a necromantia. Well, maybe not necromantia, but all next to each other. And it it was that sort of Doctor Who formula of we can go anywhere, we can do anything, we can jump into any genre. And I do feel like they've lost a lot of that recently. I did say I would mention the Once and Future series, and I probably will a couple of times because I think that's a particularly bad example of what Big Finish are bringing out lately. And they all felt so similar. Every week I felt as if we were doing the same thing, passing the baton from from, uh, one story to the next, uh, a mixture of cast from various Big Finish ranges, a load of bombast, a cinematic score, a few witty lines, and then on to the next one. This, This was different and in a really, really good way, I thought. Yeah, and I suppose just before we go into the the, the stories uh, individually, just what you're saying there as well, I think something that keeps it fresh, but also must make it more difficult for the writers and for Christopher Eccleston is not having that regular companion. So he's not sort of building, Eccleston isn't building a rapport and a relationship like he did with with Billy Piper. So every day that he's recording, he's he's got completely new castmates and everything. They've they've obviously really resisted a companion. They they kind of had that guy that, but it was just it really just bridged one story into another. It was like the end of one season in, into into the next season where I think had some kind of unseen or unheard adventures. Do you remember when we listened to the Ravagers and we were so naive that we thought that woman, no, what was her Nova. name? Nova. Nova. Yeah. yeah. The one who went, oh, you're a geek at the end of the story. We thought she was going to be back in the next set. I don't think that happened at all, did it? Disappeared. No, she never came yeah. Back. It made it seem like they were setting up for that, didn't it? Yeah. I've got to say, though, um, just to offer an alternative opinion, which isn't mine, I listen to these with my other half, and one of the reasons he doesn't like these Ninth Doctor series is because he comes to Doctor Who for the companions. So he was going, yeah, they're good stories, but I really miss the Doctor companion rapport. He's wrong, but, you know, I'll just throw that opinion in. It's one of the things where I believe that this that this series, it's one of its, its big strengths, is that, that there is no... Uh, um, ongoing companion because it shows you the strength not only of the format and the flexibility of the format but again the way that Eccleston can really shine as the doctor 
going from one scenario to another. Like, I feel like he is more open, more engaging, more personable in a way that, you know, he never sort of, you know, the, the relationship he developed with Billy Piper, yeah, it's great. But I feel like the, uh, again, the, the critiques I've seen of it on Twitter are a bit unfair for that reason. Like, you know, the doctor can be more things than just the companion of a 19 year old shop girl. Like he, he is capable of, 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 of knowing more people, of getting along with more people, of, you know, there's more he has to give. And I'm so glad that we're getting to see that. The joy in this one is that in all three stories with all three of the characters that he's closest to, he opens up possibilities for them. Yep. In the yep. first one, um, it's her to talk to all the other people and bring down the corporation. In the second one, it's to um, take that you know woman and say, you can do this, you can build your career, you can go off and you can be amazing. And in the third one, it's to, you know, give Alpha Centauri a little push and say, come on, be brave now. You've got it in you to stand up to him. Um, and that's really with the same companion, you couldn't do that, you know. Mm. So, so that felt quite refreshing as well. Yeah, I mean, you can do that. You can do that season arc where you know Rose at the end, like, finally has the power to like stand up and save the universe. But like to see him be able to affect that kind of change mm. on a on a, a, a on a more regular basis is, I mean, it's it's not only good for the good for and uh, motivating for those characters, but I feel it's also. You know, it's one of the things that draws me to this ongoing Ninth Doctor audio series is like, it's it's almost like he's talking to us, you know? He's like, you can do it. And I'm like, that is, that is very, I mean, that is unique in not having, that is a, a great thing about not having a regular companion is that all of his wisdom isn't aimed at a character that is not us, you know? Because, I mean, we always talk about in, especially New Who, how the companion is a sort of audience surrogate, you know, where if the person is changing regularly, then we can imagine, we can actually imagine, we don't have to imagine that we can be the companion. Like, if it's a regular person, every time he's running into, that is us. You know, mm. that is us. And that's that's amazing. Well, it's worth mentioning in Series 1 as well, that he, the, the sort of raison d'etre of the Ninth Doctor was that he didn't perform the act in the climax. He inspired other people to do it. Yep. Um, so they're sort of leaning into that. I kind of wish he'd been around, you know, before I started podcasting because I, I held back for a year going, who the hell's going to want to listen to me? <laughs> if I'd have had Christopher Eccleston in my ear saying, go on, Joe, do yes! it. Pick up the microphone. Yes! You can do it. Never mind. Yeah. And I suppose not having the companion, not having a regular companion stops him becoming that introspective, you know, saying at the start about yeah. not, not delving into his survivor guilt and his guilt from the time war. If he's not that close to anyone, it's, it was kind of Rose that eventually kind of got him talking about that and, and opening it up as well. And it definitely happens in this set and it's happened in previous sets where there is a character who will know him of old. And mm. like, I think it's the Brigadier in those, uh, in that two part oh, uh, Scottish yeah. one. And then the, and the Deluvenoids in this one who are like, you know, you'd be really, you'd be much better if you travel with a companion, which in, in both of these cases, I'm like, I, I know y'all are friends, but that's really none of your business because in, in all of these stories, the doctor isn't, you know, in uh, the waters of Mars, he was like drowning antediluvian spiders from the dawn of time. And like, you know, in other stories, like he goes off the rails, like in the snowman, he's hiding in a cloud and his friends are like, you really could use a friend in these ones. I'm like, He's he's doing just fine, you know. Get off his. Sorry, I almost cursed. 
Oh yeah, can we can we swear on this? <laughs> you can, you can. Yeah. Oh great, <laughs> fuck yeah! No, I um, stop writing his dick. But the, the result is, is you get a, a ninth Doctor that's full of energy, yep. full of charisma, yep. full of wit. I mean, by the end of the set, I wanted to jump in the silence yep. with him and yep. go on adventures. Ima- imagine this Doctor on TV. Mm, yeah, I'm, it's. I'm, I, th- I think. I think, and like he, I, I said in Ravages that he was a little unsure and he was trying a bit hard to push sort of the humor a bit like he did in those first couple of episodes in the tv series uh, i feel like at this point he's just mastered the audio i've always said with audio drama acting goes well as two ways like that you you have to take it a little bit above naturalism because you re- um you really have to extend the emotion to the audience but some people overcompensate and take it way above and and it, it just goes off a cliff and the emotion is, is too stressed and too angsty and too melodramatic and a bit embarrassing. Eccleston's got it perfect. He's a little above how you play something in a normal drama now, but he perfect. He just, he, he captured me brilliantly in this. I think it's closer to his own accent. Now he exaggerated the, the Manchester, the mankness of his accent on TV and it's closer to his, and I think he, that feels more comfortable as well, that he's not putting that on. Is that how you say it? Mankness? Uh, well, yeah, I think colloquially you'd say like somebody from Manchester's a mank. Oh, that means something very different in Crawley, but let's not go okay. there. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the adjectival form of that? Is it like mancuniarity or something like that? Or mancuniality? <laughs> you may have just invented a word there, you know. <laughs> uh, if I may generalize one more time before we hop into the individual stories, uh, it, it sort of ties a lot of these things together. Uh, along with the the conditions that he set, which is that for doctors like Eccleston and McGann, I also feel like Big Finish do a really good job of tailoring scripts to their interests. Uh, not only like you know, because you know McGann likes World War One, and so they'll sometimes you know throw a World War One or a plane, something about you know that the, the sort of history that he likes and enjoys personally. And I feel like Eccleston's especially his politics, which again, when we talk about the run, you know, we'll really get into that, I feel, but you know, his politics, he wears them on his sleeve. And I feel like Mm -hmm. one of the great commonalities that runs through all of those, uh, aside from Ravagers, uh, all of these Ninth Doctor audios is that he is a supporter of the downtrodden. You know, he's with, he's with the, the rank and file, like he's not hobnobbing with the, the Tsarina, like the, that famous, uh, quip of Charlie Pollard uh, to the Eighth Doctor playing Zar- uh, playing tiddlywinks with the Tsarina or whatever like that's not who he is he's with the workers yeah. and I feel like tailoring stories to that I feel like he really gets to you know really enjoy the the material much more because it's it, it is not only like the kind of stuff that his doctor would do but the kind of stuff that he can personally get behind and I feel like that makes a difference as well. Yeah, these stories are all about a sort of slightly dystopian capitalism has persisted into the yeah. into the future and is giving everybody a rough time and, and making their lives hard. And and yeah, it's why you find the, the hope and the connections and the and the compassion within that, isn't it? But within mm-hmm. that connected theme, it's three very different stories. Mm. Which which I really like. Can I just say one more thing about um this series as a whole? before we go into the actual stories and that is and i do want to bring up once the future again because i think it, <laughs> no, i think it, i think it's and i do it only to uh make a comparison 
for a critical point and not just to shit all over it again. And that is there was such a there was such a consistency of tone in this. Like like every story in this set had a point. Yeah, there was a point it was trying to make. And because it was just the ninth doctor, it felt like a ninth doctor story. You go to and a, and it's not just once a future doing this. There's a ton. River Song's doing it. All these other sets are doing this copy paste of bringing in, you know, seven characters, slapping them all on the cover and hoping that it sells. But the disadvantage of that is, is you've got the tones of four or five different series coming together and it don't work. You can't have the ninth doctor and the Bernice unbound doctor and the Paternoster gang and Livchenka coming together. That's four completely different shows. And so it's like, well, which one are we doing? And none of them particularly well, that that's a problem with that. This felt so focused on what it was doing and so focused on the point it was trying to make I was like, yeah, Big Finish can still do it. I mean, I've slagged a lot of Big Finish off lately, the later stuff. But I was like, no, this is what they should be doing. Telling stories like this confidently, consistently. Yeah, bravo. Greyhound need a flat one, over. So the first story in the set is Below There by Lauren Mooney and Stuart Pringle. Below there, as uh, Mark just said, is by Lauren Mooney and Stuart Pringle. Uh, they have co-written several stories in the monthly Torchwood range, and one for the River Song box set with uh, Ray Bloody Purchase. Uh, this is their <laughs> this is their second for Doctor Who, which uh, uh, I hope they keep. I hope they keep getting these assignments because their last one, which uh, if you go back to Trap One uh, in March when we talked about is me and you and Ross Mark talked about the eighth doctor connections and, um, uh, uh, what was the other set? Uh, the, the two sets that came out at the end of last year, they wrote the Dolby spook, which was the one about the, uh, enchanted mongoose on the Isle of man. So this um, is their second. Yeah. This is their second. Yeah. I could, I could tell they were fresh writers. The, they, 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 they crush it though. They absolutely, yeah. cr- cause that the Dolby spook one about the talking mongoose was like weird folk horror and like a uh, uh, like creepy child and like a talking talking like spectral animal and like they really like the 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 focus is here and this is one of the things for me is that they are back now with this sort of charles dickens event horizon mashup uh, and in this play is basically the setup is that there is a remote teleport station uh where the doctor finds that the equipment and its operators uh are are all slowly falling apart and the um this is a very, very strong script. And just exactly what Joe was just saying, these, you know, having listened to the Dolby Spook and and reviewed that uh, again for Trap One and now listening to Below There uh, from this set, these are playwrights. You know, there is an art, you know, it, it, this is an overused phrase, but there is an art, artisanal quality. If there is a, an artisan is someone who is good at their craft. And these are, I mean, they talk about it in the behind the scenes stuff uh, uh, every time they do a play. It's like they are playwrights. And before they only started writing for Big Finish during pandemic, and so the fact that they are bringing stage writing experience uh, uh, to Doctor Who means that, and and they've talked about this in the behind the scenes for both stories as well, is that they are used to working. And this is for me the thing about this set where it's called Travel and Hope, but I sort of feel it should more appropriately be called Scarcity Mindset, even though that sounds like really bad marketing. Uh, mm-hmm. But they are used to, you know, writing in 
small theater conditions where you can only afford a certain number of characters where it has to be a tightly tightly focused and tightly plotted script and they're always talking in the behind the scenes about how the big finish folks tell them no you can add more characters you can have more incidents you can go more places but i feel like that focus it's it's exactly what you were just talking about joe this is this is this is craftsman work well, I, I, it reminded me of the early Bernie Summerfield stories, certainly not in tone, certainly not in content, but in how the the demands there were, you can have two or three actors mm-hmm. and you need to try and tell a story with two or three actors. Mm-hmm. And the way they did that in this, in what appears to be a very small scale story, because it's just the doctor and what's the woman's name? I've forgotten already. Vix. Vix. Vix the doctor and Vix. And we don't even realise at the beginning that there is a third person. And the way the story opens up, the way they structure the revelations throughout the script, it's like you said, it is artistic. It is so perfectly done. And in a way that you think just two people talking on this, uh, oh God, what's it called? What's the actual thing called? It's a leap node. Thank you. I'm glad you've been paying attention to all the details. Thank you. <laughs> you think two people just chatting on the leap node would be extremely dull, but because the relationship between the two of them is so engaging, yep. and because you're aware she's holding something back, he's trying to gain her trust. Yep. Then she reveals what's going on. Then he says, I know that there's something wrong with the technology yep. here. We've got to expose this. And it just kept opening out a bit at a time. It was beautifully done. It's it's master it's masterfully put together. I mean, you can almost see, and it feels a, a little bit um, artificial when you put it this way. But like, you can almost see the three act structure, yeah, just exactly the way you're saying. But it doesn't feel artificial. It feels completely natural. Which again, it's just remarkable that this is you know that there is play that there is you know a, a play going on and there is exposition, but it's also but it's it's done through character moments. It's done through genuine character interaction like you feel like they're genuinely getting to know each other and that he's doing this work and that she is you know that she's absolutely resistant to it but that yeah you're right he like he breaks it down after a while like gains her trust it's beautiful you keep wondering throughout well why isn't she just telling him everything outright and that's because she's got a big secret to hide in that this fella that she tried to send home suffered a terrible accident and it sounds what is it he's been bouncing around these relays for thousands of years and something like these come back his mind's completely bent and uh, in order for his family to have his paycheck at the end of his um service yeah yeah, that that she's basically keeping him alive for that it's monstrous beautifully done it's beautiful and it's monstrous no i think i think it's a fantastic story as you say it's kind of a a bottle episode but then opens out into huge ramifications for everyone else in, in the galaxy and then just a really sort of crunchy moral dilemma, which there's no easy answer to. It's not like the doctor can just come in and, and save everything and restore. I think it's Tom, the guy. Yep. Can't restore him. Can't make sure his family gets a payout. Can't make sure that Vic saves her job or anything. It's it's real. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, a, you know, about sacrifice, really, isn't it? It's not it's not really the doctor saving the day. It's just kind of making the best of a bad situation. In. But the ambiguity of that ending where he basically opens out communication so everybody on these things can communicate with each other and hopefully start a revolution. I like that. I, I, yeah. I don't always like the answers spell out, you know? It's like, leave the audience sort of making up some of it. Because I think sometimes the answers are really disappointing. But there, but there is, like, the... the and this is, again, the how, for me, they uh, Mo- Mooney and Pringle, 
they're they're such good writers that and the production like for me this is one of those instances and it happens often in these ninth doctor sets where casting sound design music like the music during the montage sequence that montage sequence where she's just like bouncing a basketball or whatever it goes on a lot longer than it probably should but that is part of the point is how isolated she is and how she is doing whatever she can to pass the time but like the music that goes on during that like you can this feels like it feels less like an audio drama and more like uh, a soundtrack for an episode whose visuals we don't have, uh, which is incredible. It's like the, the music, again, the sound design, the script, the writing, the acting, sort of it all come, everything comes together in this one and sort of elevates, you know, what is, you know, again, ostensibly a silly Doctor Who science fiction audio play into the realm of art. I mean, it's, it's absolutely beautiful because for me, this is a, it, it's, it's, it, you know, there is the capitalist, uh, uh, um, sort of critique going on here but it's also again we're talking about how this is about a relationship like for me this is a story about stress and anxiety and depression and how you know when the doctor is reaching out to her early in the story you sort of hear him sort of muffled through Mm. like through through layers of you know through because i mean he's the way he's getting in touch is uh, isn't necessarily the uh, the standard way but his voice sounds distant and muffled and I feel like that sort of, for me, sort of mirrors that, the, the, what Vix is going through. Like, she's so deep into this, like, state of anxiety and terror and worry and the visions that she's having that any attempt to reach out to her is like that muffled, that muffled voice. And it takes repeated efforts on the doctor's part to sort of get through to her and break through, uh, uh, break through those, those barriers. Because, I mean, it makes perfect sense that she's defensive. She's been living in terror, they say, for four months that she's had him in that room, which is she, she knows that there's something wrong with that technology that yep. they are administrating. Yep. But she is so a part of the system and she's so afraid that the idea of exposing that, it just never occurred to her. So then yep. the doctor coming in and saying, no, 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 you need to tell people like, you know, we can do this. It almost gives her permission at the yeah. end to talk to all those other people. And yeah, that's, that's beautifully done. Can I just say as well, just a quick note for um, the sheer joy. I punched the air when I heard Christopher Eccleston say the words T-Mat. Cause uh, yeah. it was going, I thought I was going to come in by T-Mat. And she was like, Oh, how old are you granddad? You know, that was like yeah. 50 years ago. Or so. They they bought out team at, and now we're using. Yeah. I thought that was wonderful. What a lovely way to anchor it into classic who. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And she's, and, and Vix is beholden to that promise as well that she made. It's all about kind of, yeah, the, what, uh, what her loyalties are, what, what, what she can do. And they say just the fact that there isn't just an easy answer. The doctor can't save the day. It just really gives the story a lot of weight and stays with you, I think, a bit more than some of the others afterwards because you think, yeah, the the guy, you know, died in the end. We don't you know, his family then presumably don't don't get the money. They're gonna struggle and Vix is gonna lose a job. It's uh it's a tough thing, but it's she's done the right thing for the greater good. It's kind of uh I like the inference at the end as well of, you know, like corporations, the the people at the top of a corporation think that they are the ones that sort of are in charge of this thing but it's actually the people down at the bottom that are making all this Mm -hmm. thing work and she realizes at the end no no we are powerful if we come together we're powerful and that's just where we leave the story and that's a good note to leave it on that is that it is those bottom level people 
they're the ones doing all the work they're the ones making it happen and they're the ones that can make a difference well that's the thing is like the end i mean you do have that sort of uplift or that sense that you know that vicks in association with the other people the other drudges at the leap nodes is going to do something but you know the the doctor isn't he isn't pollyanna-ish about it he offers her he's like you should get out of here we can get you out of here and she's like no if i run then nothing changes and so she knows that and we i think i i feel like we are invited to presume uh that you know what happens after this it isn't set you know it isn't like you know that they are you know that they are going to overcome the system and topple it like we we hope that they do but it's 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 a blank page it's like you know he's come into a real scenario with a real person in real suffering i mean one of the things we haven't even thought about yet or talked about is the you know what she, what she's done you know to to make it you know she says she's been there on the station for 18 months tom had been there for five years and that he has been kept in this room for four months since this accident like is she cleaning him is she like she said she mentions at some point and i only heard it like the fifth time i listened to the story that there is a nutrition chamber so i'm like is she like guy like how is he eating how is he you know he must stink by like it's it's just so much like no no but this is like this is the system that they live in that mm -hmm. the the corporation doesn't care about them this is again scarcity mindset she has had to make do on her own for four months with a non-functioning coffee machine, which I get that, like I get that frustration. <laughs> if I don't have coffee in the morning, you know, and that's one morning, I am at the, I'm at my wit's end by midday. Like, you know, uh, 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 the, that she's taking drugs, you know, she's hooked on narcotics to try and suppress the psychic visions. And, you know, the doctor gets on her case and she's like, oh, well, a corporation wouldn't like that, would they? And she's like, they don't, they don't care. And she and Tom go through that when they do the flashback as well. He's like, you know, my daughter is going to die. And you get that cliche line, which again, it's a cliche, but the way that they deploy it makes all the difference where she's like, you know, if you go now, you'll lose everything. And he's like, if my daughter dies, I've already lost it all. You'll lose everything. What, this? This cupboard? Wow. <laughs> yeah. She's all, she's almost grateful, isn't she? She's grateful for that hellish position. Mm. That's great. That paints a pretty ugly uh, picture of the future there. You, you said one word there, which really stood out to me. Sorry, a lot of what you said just stood out to me. But one word in particular, you said she's a real person. I've heard yeah. enough of these one hour big finishes yeah. where they've got a single guest character where they make no impact on me whatsoever. I really felt she was a living, breathing person. We were in her story and the Doctor was intruding that rather than her coming in on a Doctor Who story. That's not easy to pull off in 60 minutes. Nope. Nope. And uh, going back to what you said earlier about the sound design and music, I am once again going to bring up Once and Future. Um, but it's again, it's to make a point. It's to make a point because they were very noisy, very loud. Uh, they had you know cinematic scores and all of it just feels like so much wallpaper. It's just noise. This, it was all scaled back. The music was ambient. The sound effects were simple. It meant you were right there. It There's like an immediacy, an intimacy to the story. I really like that. I just think this is the sort of thing Big Finish should be doing all the time. This, this, this is what you can do with audio drama, not, you know, mad movie soundtracks of the week. Yeah. A, a personal story between two people and a really sort of important point to make. This is what you can I do guess. with audio drama. Yeah, and again, it's totally relatable. I mean, this is a woman who, you know, w despite the sci-fi fantasy trappings, 
is like the rest of us hourly wage slaves. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, we get used to the conditions that we are under and we, we, we can't see, sorry, <laughs> I start crying during these big finishes, Joe. Uh, we don't know how to, we can't see a way out. And that is, it's one of the things that the, that a good Doctor Who story, that these Ninth Doctor stories are so good at, is like, he is there holding out his hand, and he's like, there is a, sorry. It's like, there is a, there is a way out. You know, the fact that a Big Finish story can move you to tears, I think that is pretty extraordinary, you know. And I'm a, I work in retail, so I absolutely know what you're talking about. Yeah. Right I mean, I do, I do too. I mean, customer <laughs> On the bottom rung of a corporation, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes me think because they, they wouldn't do something this low key on the TV show. But from what I understand, the original idea for the end of time was yes. the Doctor on a yeah. spaceship, very low key story with one family, and and he saved them at Christmas. And it would be very powerful to see it on TV with with live action actors and everything. It's it's fantastic they're doing it on Big Finish, and I guess what differentiates it from the DV to TV show that we're seeing things or we're hearing things on here that we, we can't see on TV, but it, it would be nice if it was two way as well. And, and they took more inspiration and, and, and did some episodes like that, that were kind of bottle episodes. It's the old sort of Star Trek thing, isn't it? Is when they didn't have a lot of money, they'd bring in two actors. Think of something like DS9's duet. They'd bring in two actors and a bloody powerful script. And it's the best bit of television they put out with no special effects in it whatsoever. You know, you just need the writing to be there and the acting to be there. Yeah. Even things like uh, some of the, um, it's a random example, but One Foot in the Grave, when they're stuck in the car in a traffic jam, or there's one where they just, the two of them can't sleep at night. And it's just two phenomenal actors and great writing. And, and I can go one better, Mark. I can go one better. The episode where Victor Meldrew's stuck at home all day because he's on jury duty. And it's just yeah. him walking around monologuing. So it's him in the standing sets. It didn't cost him a bloody penny. Yeah. It's so funny. So funny. And, and you do get glimpses of it every once in a while in Eccleston's season. You know, mostly the, the one that pops to my mind is the end of the world. And it's, and it's Rose. You know, Rose who talks to the little blue... Uh, uh, plumber, yeah. yeah, yeah, which it's that moment where you're like, That, that is that, you know, and I, as I recall, like RTD had to put that in because the the um, the script was underrunning for time, but again, that's that's one of those moments that this is a this is what this is a ninth doctor moment, but mm. you know, I kind of I kind of get it on television that they want it to be sort of big and bold and colorful yeah. and set pieces because it's television you know like yeah. we we need something to sort of feast our eyes on but on audio drama it's just you the script and the actors yeah and that's that's what makes a huge difference here is that uh kelly adams who plays vix this is her first big finish mm. and i'm like why why is why is this the first time she's done this like her voice it's that scene where she admits to uh her her drug use where she tells mm. him i've been taking it since I was a kid, off and on, and it suppresses the dreams, more yeah. or less. Like, the the tone in her voice when she does that either or, for she's been taking it since a kid, on and off, and that it helps suppress the visions or helps her sleep, more or less. Like, there is such, a, a, the, 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 the timber of her voice is just like, you can tell that she's been suffering. And like, again, the quality, to be able to bring that through, and I, I feel like every time I talk about a big finish, uh, uh, on a podcast, I'm talking about the way that these actors can manipulate their voices. And with a script, you know, the script and the actor, like there has to be that marriage. And again, to have 
Eccleston playing opposite her. Like they just they bring that that intensity they bring it out of each other. And I you know again this is not you know this is not just a, an, an encounter. You know, like you were saying, Joe, in a in a sort of bombastic sixty minute adventure, this is a relationship, yeah. which you can t- there's a, you can tell the difference. You can tell. What's astonishing is we've said all these fabulous things about this first one, and I don't even think it's the best one of the set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's. Uh, uh, this is one, this anyone's favorite? It. This is my favorite. Uh, I can understand why though. And it's her voice. It's it's what she's going through. It's the it, you know that there are things that are brought up that are never discussed, which in, in this sort of sort of story, we also tend to get a lot of like exposition dump. Cause the thing is she is seeing visions and it's like the doctor is like, you know, yeah, well, and that the pill she's taking is for, is a psychic suppressant. So we're just completely taking for granted that she has been having psychic visions since she was a child. Like there's no interrogating of that. There's no like, Oh, you can see things like that's weird. Like, there's none. We take that for granted because it's part of the world that they're building, and I love, I love that. I love that. Like th- this is something that he, like that the story takes for granted and doesn't. It's just a detail. It's a detail that isn't fleshed out, but you can build it out in your mind because that is that is how you do world building. Essentially, I think with these uh, big finish scripts, yeah, there is the opportunity because I've seen it a lot lately. You can just knock out. Uh, an okay-ish script and they'll yeah. they'll produce it to the high heaven and you've got a perfectly listenable piece of it but uh what's it lauren mooney and Stuart pringle they're not doing yeah. that it's like yeah. you're saying they're they're working on layers they want yeah. this to have an impact they want this to be an emotional experience and they've done all of that and i think you mentioned just just before we started recording joe as well there's an intimacy and an immediacy yeah. to listening to it in in earphones as yeah. well which, yeah, yeah, yeah which you don't necessarily get on the tv or, or listening to even Big Finish through speakers. That it didn't, it didn't help that I, I put it on for the first time and Marvel off fell asleep and was snoring next to me. So I, <laughs> the sound of the story and his snoring was competing. Uh, but then I listened to it again uh, when he was watching Big Brother because, of course, I wasn't going to watch that. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it really came alive that time. It's loosely based on The Signalman by Charles mm-hmm. Dickens, who mm-hmm. then... The Ninth Doctor meets Charles Dickens, and and yeah, becomes uh, you know kind of uh, important figure, and it's, it helps to set up that he's already familiar with his work and and, and that kind of thing as well. And I'll say I'm just currently um, watching Martin Chuzzlewit uh, from the box set of Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. and Chris Freckleston's Doctor is perfectly right. The sequence where they go off to America is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I've got to say on that. <laughs> well, for those of you who are uh, uh, who are audio drama fans, there is a sort of not necessarily a sister company and not necessarily a rival, but they work with a lot of the same uh, um, uh, sound people and actors. Is there's a company called Bafflegab uh, in the UK mm-hmm. that I think maybe a year or two ago put out a an audio full cast audio adaptation of The Signalman, and it's very very good. It's oh, well okay. worth it's well worth listening, especially if you like this 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 ter- this tale. Baffle yeah. Gab, are they called? Mm-hmm. That's a line from the Pirate Planet. They must be Doctor Who fans. I wouldn't be, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. They, they're the, I think they're the ones who did that uh, Baker's End series oh, with, yeah, uh, yeah, Tom, with Tom Who Baker fans. initially and then Colin Baker. Do you remember that line he says to Queen Zanxia? I've never heard so much Baffle Gab in all my life. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. They also did an adaptation of The Hellbound Heart a couple of years ago, which is also awesome, The which is the, the Clive Barker story that inspired Hellraiser. 
I'm just assembling my Christmas list while we talk. Okay? Uh, yes, it, those, both of <laughs> those, the Signalman and the, the Hellraiser adaptation are, they're extraordinary. Yeah, they I did really want to did. add, of the audio dramas you're mentioning, not that I'm just assembling a Christmas yeah. list while we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, before we before we move on, yeah, I just wanted to say, yeah, I do. This is This is my favorite of the three. And again, that's mostly because of how relatable I find it, you know, this is like, like you know, it's the, uh, you know, we're here to at the end of the year and this is the time where I've, I've, I've run out of energy, you know, I've run out of F's to give as it were. Behold the garden in which I, I sow my fucks and see that it is barren. Um, like I'm just, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so tired. And so listening to her exhaustion, like you can hear it in her voice. And again, that is, that is good acting. That is a mature actor. You know, that is someone who knows what they're can see what's on the page and knows how to bring it to life. The, 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 the desperation that, that, you know, you'll use any, anything to get through, whether it's substances or, you know, the the doctor is sort of like mockingly uh, uh, gets on her case when she's like, yeah, I mean, I take a break when the system goes down for 20 minutes. Like, I mean, I get, I get that again, that mindset of, you know, work, it just sort of takes over and, you know, you, you can't see anything else or, or when in times of high anxiety or, you know, uh, uh, depression bordering on despair, like that reaching out becomes hard. And th- I think that that is what you're saying at the start, Joe, that this is a, this story is about, it's about communication. You know, it's not only like reaching out to other people in a sort of social way, but like in a need way, like she is so, she's so deprived. She's the, the, the scarcity mindset, the privation that she's used to has become so overwhelming that, you know that 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 the that the communication again it's muffled at the beginning between her and the doctor, but like by the end she is screaming her truth to the universe, and that is it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I've got to say, there's a, it's extraordinary because there was a time where the best of Big Finish could connect with me yep. in a very emotional way. I still remember the ending of. Death in Blackpool, when Lucy Miller's on the beach and leaves the doctor, yeah. and I cried ugly tears yeah. listening to that. And it hasn't happened to me for quite some time with Big Finish. I got close with the purity sets recently because there was some really powerful stuff in there. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say it's a good thing that you're crying because I just wouldn't say that. You're a nice bloke. But the fact that you are moved enough to tears by something that Big Finish is putting out. It means they're doing something right, Joe. It is. It is a good thing, you know. And I'm. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not ashamed of it, you know. It's like it's cathartic. It's that's that's what that's what I come to these stories for. And I've mentioned on other podcasts, like I started Big Finish uh, with knee, when I had knee surgery about ten years ago, and it was the Eighth Doctor audios that kept me on my exercise bike, which is covered in clothes behind me. But like, yeah, they're I good mean, for that, that, aren't they? They're an yeah. hour long on the cross yeah. trainer, you know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, but yeah, no, it, like you get invested, you get involved. And one of these days, I, I'm going to be on one of these podcasts with Conrad, and that day I will cry. That day, that you have not seen crying until because the story I just told you, like he is part of that story. Conrad is part of that story. He's part of my story. And I got to say, like you know, you said this was your favorite because uh, of how you connected with this. We had, we're not there yet, but my favorite is the laughs because. I'm very angry about politics these days and we'll get there for exactly the same reason. I connected with the subject matter. Yes. Uh, I think, I think we'll be in a lot of agreement on that one, Joe, and particularly everything (laughs) that's in the news at the moment um, is, uh, is, is 
even more so than usual, particularly. I'm starting to feel a bit sorry about um, what the butler did. I'm oh, sorry, the butler did it by <laughs> James Moran, <laughs> which I don't think is anyone's favourite, but it's still good. It's, yeah. it's, it's still a very good story. And I think what you were just saying there, Melvin, just earlier yeah. about people making connections and reaching out, that really really ties in nicely to the, the beginning of this story. So this one's written by James Moran, who obviously wrote for the TV series with the Fires of Pompeii. I think it's only fairly recently come to Big Finish and, and done some scripts, as I understand it. Um, but yeah, we've got a really nice little opening pre-titles sequence on this one, where you've got these two people who have never met, but they've they've talked uh, like the Doctor and Vix in the first story. They've talked over the sort of vastness of space. They're both alone, and and they've, they've built up this rapport and, and this kind of tentative relationship. And it's really, really lovely. And then, uh, yeah, she she dies, unfortunately. So that's it's just like an immediate kind of uh, kicker because you start to really like these Very quickly as well. Within, yeah, like, I was about to within say, within minutes. like a minute and a half. <laughs> yeah. And these are like middle-aged people like flirting. And there's something so endearing about that. Yeah, it's it's. you think they're going to be the main characters. And then... Yeah. What did she say? I'm wearing a sexy black number. Yeah. You can't see it right now, but I look amazing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> she's, like, she's literally describing her flight suit. And she's like, it's about two sizes too big, love. Dirty yeah. bitch. Well, I better not say that. She dies. <laughs> and she's like, and I've got boots with acid stains. <laughs> yeah. And that... But again, it ties into what you say, Melvin, about the scarcity and the privations, because yep. she says, oh, the yep. washing machine broke six weeks ago. And, uh, you know, the, obviously yep. her, her uniform doesn't fit and everything like that. So it's these people who are kind yes. of... Uh, it just feels like a typical day, doesn't yeah. it, really? My yep. boiler broke last week, and I can't yep. fit into any of my clothes because I've been eating too many Christmas cakes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah a lot of these characters, are, especially in the first yep. two stories, they're kind of scratching and living against really uncaring... Uh, yeah, kind of really capitalist background. And obviously that's the driver for, for the second story as well is the, uh, you know, to, not to skip to the end, but mm. the motive for the for the murders in this one, because uh, as, as the title, The Butler Did It, suggests mm-hmm. it's it's a murder mystery. Yes, they are not disguising the genre we are it's stepping fantastic. into, are they? <laughs> it, it also makes me laugh so hard when he starts, uh, and we're just going to jump around, but like the... Where he's like, you know, this is a this is basic this is a murder this is a murder she wrote plot, and then like later on he's like, what I tell you, Jessica Fletcher is the goat. Like every time I hear that, I and I, I, I just I laugh so I laugh so hard. He's so funny. Someone so say someone say oh we don't have a butler. Yeah. He's like oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I've got to do some work then, haven't I? <laughs> oh, it's great. It was a very witty script, this, I thought. Yes. It really is. I think it shared some DNA with the unicorn and the wasp and the doctor getting mm. quite quixotic and stepping into yep. that detective role, whereas that's obviously Agatha Christie, but that tradition of bringing all the suspects together at the end mm-hmm. after the investigation to reveal who did it. And that on British TV continues to this day with Death in Paradise. I mean, if we didn't have the rounding up of the suspects at the end, there would be something missing from this story. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then the at uh, that point, the murderer admits it as well. Kind of basically, yeah, confesses, don't they? This, uh... The only <laughs> thing, great also. the only thing I will say is, Big Finish have done a couple of these murder mysteries before. They did it with Max Warp in the Eighth Doctor run, oh, yeah. and yeah, they yeah. certainly did it with Bang Bang a Boom way back in the day. And I would say, as murder mysteries, 
i.e. the intricacies of the plotting and the twists in the reveals, those two older ones were superior to this. This was perfectly good, you know, and, and it performed its function really, really well. Maybe not. I mean, I've just listened to Bang Bang Boom and that last episode is sublime on a level I can't even describe. Um, but yeah, sorry, I just wanted to add that. No, no, but you can also tell that that they that it, like like we're both say, like we're all saying like they're 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 having fun with this mm-hmm. as well. Like they're clearly taking the piss out of it. Like, and this is you know James Moran. What I know him primarily from, aside from the Fires of Pompeii, is like he is the screenwriter for one of my absolute favorite horror comedies. Which, if you've never seen it, please put it on your list immediately. Uh, Cockneys versus Zombies. Oh, it is heard of it. Hilarious! It is. Ab- it is a right. laugh. It's going on the list so, with everything else. There we it's go. like a zombie, a zombie apocalypse, and the the it all centers on like an old folks' home. Like the old folks are getting like kicked out of their, they're going to be kicked out of their place and moved like somewhere else is going to be torn down for a new condo or whatever. But it is, and uh, wouldn't you know it, Lady Christina is in that movie. <laughs> uh, Michelle Michelle Ryan, who is she's marvelous. I'm really pleased James Moran is writing for Big Finish because as far as I understand, The Fires of Pompeii is about 75% Rusty Davis. Certainly that's the impression he got when I read the writer's tale that there was a top-to-toe rewrite on that. So Um, I think a lot of his original ideas were in there, but he did all the dialogue. So this is sort of um, distilled James Moran. This is the sort of Doctor Who that he wanted to deliver. And it's a lot lot of of fun as well. There are so many jokes in this one. Yeah. Yep. But it's also got it's got nice character journeys in it as well, hasn't mm-hmm. it? What? No, sorry, mm-hmm. I'm so terrible with the details. What's the woman's name? The woman who he keeps trying to encourage throughout this. So this is Myra. Thank you. I'm so glad you listened to them six times. And then she's played by Emma Swan, which again, this is another like almost effortless, effortless performance. Yeah, because she's the most sympathetic character in it, isn't she? There's yeah. all the characters are really well drawn, and I think as you were saying about working in customer service joe and i've worked in retail and and retail banking and uh you know there's, there's not, not much to pick between them in terms of having to deal with the public and it's very recognizable those very yeah how jaded some people get with it and you know there's the, there's the characters who just think that everybody else is stupid and then people who kind of uh, hate the customers even though you actually rely on them the uh, the, rece- the receptionist I love she's like she she plays it like um like she's Janine from Ghostbusters like just yeah Ghostbusters has a terrible attitude and I'm like I love it. I love that I love that character I mean I've been doing it ten years and I'm still smiling <laughs> so I, I'm I'm a bit more cynical than I was ten years ago but you know I just like being around people. But but the, the thing is with this script is it's a murder mystery so people have secrets otherwise there's no yes. reveals in it so we mm-hmm. know people are hiding things so mm-hmm. we can't get too close to them i just made the assumption that that character whose name i've forgotten again melvin which one lyra lyra, lyra. Okay. lyra uh, that character she was exactly who she appeared to be oh yeah because yeah, yeah. i figured if she if she's um the murderer by the end because i halfway through i was going they're not going there are they because they're really getting the, <laughs> the two of them close and like he's really doing his spiel of, of trying to encourage her to be a better person and go and yeah. fulfill all her ambitions and things like this and i thought she's not going to turn around at the end and go ha ha <laughs> like i fooled you you thought i was another one of those girls that you could uh but she wasn't she was exactly who she appeared to be but all the others they all had secrets. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everyone's holding something back so we can't get to know them as well as we might. 
and the unicorn and the wasp is a good is a good comparison because what they're hiding is usually like really banal or really stupid <laughs> like the guy who's like uh you know fi- sorry i finally I, I confess i stole a bunch of money and i'm like you're like what? you did what you stole money like who cares like this is not important get away i'll tell you what i missed because he was dazzling eccleston at the end of this yes, when he's just yes. pulling out all the mm-hmm. secrets of everybody mm-hmm. and revealing them on a platter i missed the donna stroke male character and they both fulfill this function in bang bang a boom and unicorn and the wasp of going oh so she did it oh so she did it like, and you know they're sort of like constantly accusing the wrong person um but even so man that's having a blast isn't it and that's and that's the good thing about myra is that i feel like she she sort of does that role but in the middle where she has to play the doctor uh, yeah. And it's just like she's just going off, like uh, you know, when she's talking to him through the earpiece. Oh, that was I'm hilarious, like, oh wasn't it? And she <laughs> kept like... talking to him. Like, Who are you talking to? Oh, no one. Sorry. Back to the threats. <laughs> and then she finally gets the hang of it, and she's like, uh, uh, or the mm. the guy in, who lives in the gas tank is like, I won't stand for this kind of rudeness. And she's like, Well, excuse me, what kind of rudeness would you prefer? <laughs> oh, just brilliant. So funny. I was making my dinner um, listening to this and laughing my head off. Rather, I thought I was having a conniption fit in the kitchen. It was very funny. And then they finish that scene and she is just so tickled by the fact that she's like mm. been able to do this. She's mm. like, again, it's like the line and the inflection, the way that she says it. She's like, um, I, I acted clever and confident and he believed me. And she just seems... Yeah mind blown by that and like the the difference that the echoes that this doctor again can make in people's lives is just like you know he drops out of the sky and he 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 is not the agent of the action he is empowering other people yeah to Mm. be their own and subtly as well just by getting to know them just a little bit and in exactly the same way that the character the vix in the first one would never have conceived bringing down the company yep she, the, uh, the character in this one, Myra, am I Myra, getting it right yeah. now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. thank God. Uh, Myra <laughs> never can, she doesn't have any self belief. Ah, yeah, she kind of thinks it's too late in her life for her to, to achieve anything or go. In the end, she goes to medical school, doesn't she? And that's, uh, that that's kind of yeah her her learning from that experience but yeah you're right that scene where she goes into the spaceship where the doctor would die from the gases on there yeah. but but she can survive if if they breach her, her suit it's a real turning point for the character isn't it it's a, it's a really really fantastic scene that it felt a little bit inspired by cold war when clara goes to speak to the ice warrior but um whereas that was kind of played for scares this is this is quite a humorous scene but like you say it's it's, it's a good kind of confidence boost as well Mark, we're having such a lovely time talking about the butler, did it? Why did you have to go and bring up Cold War? <laughs> Cold War's a great story. What yeah, I know. I do really just to bait you. I think it's fun. I was going to say, it reminded me a bit of the sequence in Death in Heaven where Clara's pretending to be the Doctor, but I don't yeah. even want to think about that, so let's move on. It's another uh, fantastic story. <laughs> you're yeah, no, no. mad. <laughs> But yeah, no, you're right. Like uh, for all the ulterior motives of the other characters, yeah. I feel like the Eccleston Doctor is also a really good judge of character. So I love when he mm. exonerates her at the beginning. She's mm. like, "Well, why aren't you a suspect?" And he's like, "Well, you were, but I cleared you." And he's, she's like, "Well, how? I, you know, you haven't." And he's like, "Well, I, you just look trustworthy." And she's like, "That's not scientific." And he's like, "Just deal, <laughs> just deal with it. I'm, this is a good thing." <laughs> what I really loved was how they pulled the rug out tonally 
in the climax when you're mm. having all these jokes and all these fun interactions mm. and then the motive turns out to be this fella who's selling the dna mm. of of um races that have died yep. out yep that's horrific isn't it and it mm. also you know sort of last of the time laws it was linking to that a little bit as well although i don't mm. think they explicitly stated that no 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 i mean they again they make a, a vague allusion where it's, they're also telling him that he needs to like find a new companion to travel with the, 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 the female Deluvenoid says, you know, you've been traveling on your own for a while and I know things have been rough, but that's really the only thing that they, that they say, mm. which I like that because it can be, it can still be anything. Like I, I, again, I, I said it at the start, but I feel like people make too much of the sort of time war PTSD. Cause there's that scene where, you know, where he says to Rose, you know, I've done it again. I've gone and uh, met up with another stupid, I've gone to trust another stupid ape. Which for me is like if this is Eccleston's like first go, like was this something he's talking about, you know, from the time war? It doesn't matter. Like for me, of course he had a life before Rose. Of course he had a life before Rose. And for me that implies that he has been he has trusted and he has been let down. And like that, I am more than willing to accept. And I I hope they'll tell a story like that at some point. Like give him a companion for a season where the end is tragic because he let him down or he fails because he trusted the wrong person. Like I would love that kind of a story at some point for the Eccleston doctor, but you know, trusting someone isn't necessarily a bad thing. What the climax reminded me of when I say sort of um, having the rug pulled out tonally, it reminded me a bit of nightmare of Eden, which is another, it's not a murder mystery, but it is a whodunit who's mm-hmm. smuggling the drugs. We find out who did it. And then we have this pantomimic scene of the doctor running around going, Oh, my arms. And we're, so we're lulled into this full sense of security. And then you suddenly get that scene where he's like, go away with Tris. Cause he's a smart. And I felt exactly the same here. I was sort of lulled into a full sense of security with all the jokes. And then when they revealed why he was doing it and just mm-hmm. sort of how he didn't care that he was wiping out species for yeah. profit. I was like, that's, that's, that's a, it takes a confident script to sort of change tones like that very quickly. Yeah, and it's, it's nice without laying it on too thick that the Doctor mm-hmm. has the kinship with those two aliens mm-hmm. because they're the last of their species as well. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of a nice idea that's that's almost uh, incidental in this episode that they're out there. They, they could come back and you could do more stories with them. Mm-hmm. They can meet other Doctors. Yep. Just a nice idea that they're just constantly traveling the universe like the Doctor together. Uh, as well, it's it's something that you could do a lot more with them. I think you shouldn't say that. You know, you know how Big Finish loves a sequel. <laughs> you know, but I would say all three ep- all three stories here, you could happily do a sequel with those characters in those mm-hmm. settings, or, or certainly with the ideas that they presented. Yeah, which is great yeah. because you know, again, the thing about this the Ninth Doctor uh, uh, adventures at Big Finish is that it doesn't tend to. I mean, every once in a while, you know, you get the Brigadier in, or every once in a while, you'll get the Cybermen or whatever, but like, mm. this is mostly like we're doing new stuff, you know? And I, I really, really love that. And I uh, think you sort of resist, you know, bringing back the Tar and Wood Beast or, yeah. you know, whatever <laughs> 1970s Doctor Who story they want to plunder this week for a sequel. <laughs> and let's have a sequel to Below There instead, with the corporation finally brought down. Yeah. But before we move on again, just like James Moran's script, I just I love it so much because it is like and Cockneys versus Zombies does a similar thing where there's a lot of really gruesome stuff that's happening here. But they're also like, oh, my, I, I just can't I, I cannot spoil the jokes because you need to watch it. But the jokes are so funny because they're in contrast with all this insanity that is happening around it. But my favorite joke in this one is where he finally um, gets someone. It's, I think it may be the receptionist to make him a cup of tea. 
and he's like, it's just it's just a throwaway line, but he's like, this is as far this is as far from tea as you can get with this actually not being not tea. Oh, like, yeah. it's just such a tor- like the syntax is so torturous, but it's like yeah. it's he's so like they, they put so much weight onto that. It is so funny. Do you know why that made me laugh so much? It's because I make the worst tea. I'm a coffee drinker, so I make the worst tea in the world. When I'm at work, I go, Who wants a brew? And they all just go, No! And all just go the same way. So I can absolutely relate with that one. That was a great joke. I think I two it. lines that I absolutely loved in it was when the doctor is pretending to be the companion and he mm-hmm. says, my name's Jamie Sullivan. I'm not very bright, but I've got a heart of gold. Oh, That's yes. Fantastic. And then when um, it's when Myra sees, she goes inside the TARDIS when they're testing the blood to see what the poison is. And she mm-hmm. says, it's, it's, and he goes, go on, say it. Everybody does. She goes, it's inside out. And I think <laughs> after 60 years, still finding such a such a cool, clever, funny thing to say about the TARDIS being bigger on the inside shows kind of, yeah, real inventiveness, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I'm going to say this because it's you and you'll appreciate it, but I actually think Stephen Moffat was the best for that, you know. He found, I, I felt in those six seasons, he found a hundred ways of doing that mm-hmm. inside in various spectacular and imaginative ways. Yes, the, yeah. the best one for me is still the Peter Capaldi uh, "Husbands of River Song." Oh my! Like, oh the, the my have been God! <laughs> <laughs> my knowledge of spatial dimensions <laughs> has been capsized. I can't remember the line now. Has been transformed. Yes, it like capsized. <laughs> Where the fuck did I get capsized from? <laughs> <laughs> brilliant but yeah i mean again here's like this is a this is a working a working woman who feels like her life has passed her by mm. and by the end like she's like i love that idea of, of 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 her mobility as well like that this is not that you know in in the future you know we may still be you know under the thumb of corporations or you know live on live in terrible circumstances on remote uh, space stations but there's still that ability to change your life if you want to like that is that feels like more science fiction to me than anything else in this story. Like you know, yeah, she can still apply to medical school. She can get it done. But I've got a friend from college, you know, in, in my mid forties, who you know had a really successful career, and you know, just recently finished law school, and now she's going to go because you know all the stuff that's happening in the world. She's like, you know, I need to, I need to be in a place where I can help this, and I feel like that, like that's relatable to me for that reason as well. You know, I say you've inspired me. I'm going to hand in my notice tomorrow. Do it. And follow my dreams. No, uh, well, no. <laughs> unfortunately, I've got to keep a roof over my head. But <laughs> well, like I said, that is the most fantastic element of this story. Like that's that's the most unrealistic yeah. thing. But it's but it's but again, it's lovely. It's lovely. But it do, it does even address the the practicality of it because the doctor gives uh, gives Myra the money that the stolen money. Yep. The the, the, sto- the stolen money, the yeah. proceeds of crime stuff, doesn't it? <laughs> so it's not like it's a kind of fairy tale. Oh, I'm just going to go off and do this. Like mm-hmm. it's addresses the fact that they are living in a kind of ruthless economy like that that yeah she has to she has to have that too. i thought that was the best banal twist of all was that he didn't have drugs or anything like that he just had loads of vaults of money in his ship <laughs> <laughs> he's got the swag but yeah the doctor uh, this doctor is a he's, a he's a doctor of the people and i really i really have a lot of mm. time for that you know there's a, a a lot of emphasis especially in the 10th and 11th doctor era that when he meets people he turns them into soldiers and i feel like mm-hmm. that is one thing for me and i you know i get it that the doctor as a character you know there's a continuity there, there are certain characteristics that are never that are that are the same from one incarnation to the next but 
I really like it's one of the things that I love about the Ninth Doctor specifically is that he is so like there are things that he does or ways that he treats people that no other doctor does. And like this, this is the thing is like he doesn't turn people into soldiers. He empowers them to to do more than they thought they could. And he does that with Rose, too. You know, mm-hmm. you know, from the first episode where she's like, you know, I may not, uh, uh, you know, I may not be the, you know, have a great job. or I may have lost my job, blew up. But I remember I had like, you know, uh, she got like second place in gymnastics in seventh grade or whatever. So that yeah. is what that is the skill she'll use. Like that. That's that's such a this is such a ninth doctor thing. that He is, you know, he is a person who uh, uh, enables people and empowers them. I think if anybody was curious to know what sort of subsequent seasons with the Ninth Doctor would have been like on TV, they should check out these audios because this is this is him where Eccleston's relaxed into the role and the writings of such that you know they know how to write for him now because they've done how many sets have they done now? This is the this is the third season of twelve. So so there you go. So they've done a ton of them now. Yeah. So if you are curious of the Ninth Doctor and you've not explored any of this and you want to know sort of what a very confident take on the character would be like, check out Travelling Hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's virtually no continuity with the Ninth Doctor as well. So you say you oh, can, it's wonderful, curious, isn't it? You can just wherever. step into any of them. Yeah, It's one of the few ranges you can guarantee you're not going to hear Nick Briggs playing Daleks, Cybermen, you know, Jadoons. Oh no, actually, the Cybermen were in it, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I'll take it back. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> and he's in the next story as well. So, <laughs> uh, so shall I? Shall I start one? Yep, go for it. So the third story in this set is "Run" by Robert Valentine, the wonderful Robert Valentine. And what I'd like to do is actually read out the synopsis. Because I sent this synopsis out to 10 of my friends and said, what do you think? And they all went, I want to I listen to this. I think it's one of the most enticing synopsis they've ever done. Mm-hmm. When, Hamus, when heinous demagogue Bellatrix Vega threatens the stability of the Galactic Federation, the Doctor convinces newly elected representative Alpha Centauri to run against her for president. I mean, already this sounds brilliant. As Vega's team mount a campaign of dirty tricks, the Doctor and Alpha must thwart a murderous conspiracy or see the galaxy's greatest democracy become a brutal dictatorship. And I think reading that, you know it's going to be a fun story because that's a really quirky premise. The Doctor, Ninth Doctor and Alpha Centauri, that's just gold on its own. Mm. Um, But this is a script with a point to make. And it's an angry point, and I love it. Yeah. Um, there are some lines in this script where I, I literally stopped and wrote them down. I, I don't usually take notes when I listen to big finishes to talk about them. Um... Oh, you've done the same. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got a go- I've got a Google Doc o- open over here. In particular, <laughs> there is a sequence between uh, the Doctor and Bellatrix. Is it Bellatrix? Is that right? Yes. Thank yep. you. Um, played gloriously by Jane Usher. I mean, it's the, there's no subtlety in it at all. Mm-hmm. It's the most insanely over-the-top performance. Mm-hmm. And somehow, it's still less over-the-top than Donald Trump, which I <laughs> thought was a, a great <laughs> a great choice to make. Um, let's see. I've, yeah, so... Bellatrix says... No, sorry. There's a scene where Alpha Centauri says, they always come for the non-humanoids first. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. And then there's a comment in the scene between the Doctor and Bellatrix where he says, you're scared, 
all you can do is appeal to the worst in people and you know it. And we know Robert Valentine is basically talking about either the American elections or the Brexit campaign in the UK. But there are so many pointed comments in in what is actually a very uh, it's it's basically a comedy. This it's a very it funny story, yeah. but it's a it's a brutally angry comedy. Yeah. And I yeah. sometimes think that's the best kind: get people laughing and then make your bloody point. Yeah, yeah. It's like what Amandia Nucci does to great effect in in um, in a lot of his comedy scripts as well. I think this is fantastic. This is my favorite one of the set. I mm. think I love all three, but. Because you know of the anger, and particularly as as we record in the UK, the COVID inquiry is unfolding, with just the sheer callousness, corruption, uh, just absolute uselessness of of a government who are in place and are in place because of the Brexit vote. There's loads of pointed stuff about that, so it, it takes swipes at sort of client journalism. Uh, there's a point when uh, when Vega says all the news channels are talking about Office and Tory even my ones and you think well yeah that's you know that's like the tv channels and the papers and stuff that are just mm. pure pure client journalism speaker of the house he's, he's basically john burko isn't he with the uh, with the famous uh, kind of order <laughs> uh, kind of saying and stuff he did sound like he stepped straight out of a dickens so i thought you know yeah, like, yeah. the courtroom traumas <laughs> and then just all the talk about sort of yeah, your um, Vega being a populist demagogue, and again, that's that's both countries, isn't it? She says I could blow up a federation building and everyone in it, and the people would still vote for me. Now, mm. I really, I was in the bath listening to this one. Sorry, I'm telling you about all of my domestic affairs yeah, as please. I'm listening to these. And I sat up in the bath, and I'm like, is that a dig at nine eleven there? I think it's about Donald Trump saying that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. And his supporters would still vote for him. Right. Yeah. Well, either way, I mean, it is it's a vicious bulb. And this is the thing is like I feel like a lot of these things, you know, even though there are direct antecedents uh, that are, I mean, a lot of this is ripped literally from the headlines. Uh, And I love the behind the scenes. Rob Valentine is saying that you know they told me not to make it too like not to be explicitly political, and I'm like. Well, you are implicitly, you are very implicitly political a lot of the time. This is the most political script since Russell T. Davis left the TV show. And and again, I totally get it. And Nick Briggs in the behind the scenes, you know, is sort of like waffling around about why you want to not be, you know, super on the nose. But again, Robert Valentine is like, again, I I get that he wants to cover the company's ass for that. But like, Mm. again, this is. Uh, uh, it's one of the things that that uh, 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 it, it always angers me. Uh, this is a story that I mean, I did I did love this story, and it is it's a very powerful one, but it made me very angry. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm mean, sure we'll talk about this too. But like, I thought that was the point, though. It yeah, was yeah. to stir up that feeling. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, especially you know what the, the your first quote, Joe, about the the non sorry the non <laughs> the day after. I, won't, I can't even say his name. He's, he angers me so much. And the fact that he's still considered a viable candidate for president in the next election is, despite all the corruption and the all the stuff that has been, and this is the client journalism stuff, is the thing is, like, he drives clicks, he drives views, like, he's good for the media. And that mm-hmm. is what is infuriating, is that they will not stop him, they will not challenge him, even though he's been indicted on hundreds of counts. Uh, that's and for me, that's the most fantastical thing in this one is that at the very end they're like, 
Bellatrix Vega has been indicted on all these counts of like election tampering. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that is fantasy because that yeah. has happened a million times and nothing has happened. I think it's given us the ending we want in real life, yes, though, isn't it? Of course. It? It's, like, of it's course. fulfilling our fantasies of yeah. what we'd like to happen to that he who shall not be named. But it's yeah, that it's thing cathartic, about the... the idea that liberal democracy is saved. Uh, you know, it's it's a sort of a very vulnerable, fragile thing, and that yeah. they're able to save it on this occasion. But in the way that in real life, that fight never ends, and it's always under threat. Yeah. Which which is what um, yeah, which is what we don't get. Do you know, weird enough, you can make a parallel with Doctor Who content. You know, because you said there about well, they say in this about appealing to the worst in people. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a reason why you go on YouTube and there's all these sort of NMDs and Jodie Whisker haters, mm-hmm. and their videos mm-hmm. are getting you know, hundreds of, hundreds thousands, of thousands of people viewing them. And then you've yeah. got some people saying nice things about her and they're getting a couple of thousand. It's because people are drawn to this stuff. People are yeah. angry in general and they, they want something to sort of blame and something to shout at and something to point at. And and this brings it up a lot. And the thing is, those are the idiots that complain about Doctor Who being political because it has because it has diversity in it. That's not being political. That's just, Never just underestimate how stupid people are. All right? yeah, representation isn't isn't or isn't political in the way that this is. It's it's it's, it's the same yeah. people, Mark. You know that watched Aliens in London and World War Three and went, oh. I hated those farting aliens. How embarrassing. I missed the joke that they're a load of political windbags. You know, like, (laughs) there was one line which I just loved. I mean, it was terrifying. Um, So the the fella behind Bellatrix is unveiled as, you know, having an evil scheme. And he goes, I looked at all those warnings from history and saw them for what they really are, an instruction manual. And I swear to God, Trump's campaign team did exactly that. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the thing. Where what I was gonna say earlier about the the non that come for the non humanoids first is, you know, the day after he was elected in 2016, there was uh, a couple towns over. They have um, uh, the I, I'm Mexican American, and that's my heritage. My my dad's father emigrated from Mexico in the 19 teens and uh, naturalized at Ellis Island on his way to fight in World War II. So I mean, that was like you know what 15 20 years that he was living here in the country in a, in a, uh, um, a negligible st- uh, official status uh, 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 in terms of immigration laws. But, you know, one thing about today is that my family's story wouldn't, could not happen today. It could not happen today. But that the very next day after the election, because it was day one of his campaign, he was like, Mexicans are rapists. They're murderers. They're coming over the border. There's uncontrolled border security. Like we need to build a wall, all this stuff. The day after he was elected, People had thrown bricks through the Hispanic Center, uh, a couple of towns, and I was, ter- I was terrified for my life. You know, I started carrying, like, I'm carrying a knife. Like, what am I going to do with a knife? Like, if someone, because, I mean, that's the other thing. Is, like, most of these people are your Second Amendment people who are like, you know, you're never going to take my guns away. And, like, the, uh, the violence and the vitriol and the rage, because, I mean, they're right. You know, Bell- Bellatrix Vega also says at one point, you know, what if I went on TV and said, I don't know, something about yeah. four legs good, six Targeting legs bad. hexapods, yeah. Some people might get the idea to commit an atrocity, is what she says. That's exactly what you just said there happened for real. And so, you know, again, the last election cycle in 2016, or two election cycles ago, again, I guess, you know, it was border security, it was Mexicans, it was South Americans that are crossing the border. 
And then, you know, what was it maybe a year and a half ago? Now it's, now it's trans people. Now it's uh, yeah. drag shows. Like we have to keep drag shows away from kids. Like they will demonize and go trans black trans people are being murdered. They're being murdered because of this. I mean, again, this is a, it's a funny script, but this is it's real stuff. It is mm. real stuff, and and it's making its points really well as well. Um, the sad truth is that we don't want to admit is a lot of people out there are racist and yeah. sexist and homophobic yeah. and things yeah. like that, you know. And those are people voting, yeah. and those are the people this this script is effectively not taking a piss out of, but parodying, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's in this in this one it is going more after the, the the politicians rather than like the idiots and the the awful kind of ignorant people that vote for them. But they're explaining how the politicians but whip up that feeling, yeah, how it. they target certain people. She says at one point, "All I need is the bad ones to share the same, same voting, voting intentions,", intentions. Yep. which is yeah. exactly what happened with it's the president. I was putting those mm. newspapers out every day, and there was some awful mm. racist smear. Uh, you know, anti-immigration smear on the front of the Daily Mail every single day. Enough people read that, they start voting. Yeah. Yep. It's disgusting. It's, it's like the most widely read newspaper in the UK, isn't it? And it's absolutely vile. It's just smartly written enough for people to think it's an intelligent you know, piece mm. of work, but it's just a hate rag. Sorry, yeah. we've gone very political here, but this, is, but this, this, is this story is. does inspire this. Yep. I mean, you know, to bring it to something funny... I thought the the um, the gag at the end, defeated by a landslide, as the fe- <laughs> <laughs> literally as a landslide coming over him, was just the perfect ending. And Nick Briggs is playing the Ice Warrior, isn't he? And he's sort of hissing and laughing at the same time at <laughs> his own joke. And it is worth remembering as well. This is just a very cute story yes. about one of my favourites, Alpha Centauro, that yeah. Hamaxpite. No, hang on. Hermaphroditic hexapod. Hermac- yeah. That, yeah. Yep. <laughs> from Curse of Peladon and Monster of Peladon. You know, originally played by Yassan Churchman as a, mm-hmm. a gay politician mm-hmm. um, and now played brilliantly by Jane Goddard. So good. Stepping tentatively into this new role mm-hmm. um, and then finding herself sort of foisted into politics because mm-hmm. Bellatrix's only rival has been mysteriously murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the doctor comes in as her aide and the person that is basically going to get to win the election and become the president. And that that whole story of Alpha sort of being very nervous at the start mm-hmm. to the point where someone tries to someone throws a racist slur at her yep. in in session and she goes, no, I'm not having that, you know. And this is this is why the Galactic Federation was created in the first place to prevent yeah. comments like that. And if we don't do what we should be doing, then we're going to go back in that direction again. Because the whole thing about Bellatrix is she wants a, a dictatorship and inter- intergalactic mm. war, doesn't she? Yeah. God, this is such a good script. Well, this is my my question about the whole thing. And again, I've listened to this several times now, and they never talk. They they never explain what it is, and they don't say in the behind the scenes comments. But she, like, uh, 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 they, uh, uh, Alpha Centauri, is there more or less, like, her thing is that she wants an amendment to the Galactic Leisure Cruiser Lido policy. <laughs> but they never explain what that is. They, they, they give you, like, a little hint that it's something to do with bathing laws. So mm-hmm. my thing is, like, and I just want to see, uh, uh, sort of get your, your thoughts on this, even if you haven't heard a million times, like, 
that's all you really get about it in the story is that she wants a, an amendment to this policy and that she mm-hmm. says that we struggled for these rights. I think it has to do with them being nude, like nude bathing. Right. Oh, maybe. I didn't make the connection. Which, yeah. which is the joke about, you know, them, about uh, Alpha Centauri looking like a giant penis. So, like, there's right. a, again, there's a joke there, but no one says the joke. Oh, yeah, that's that clever. <laughs> which I could not stop laughing. Holy yeah, the cow! It looks like a giant, yes. like a giant yeah. cop put him in a cloak. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of basically the day of filming, wasn't it? Yeah. When the costume turned up and they said we can't, we can't put that out. Yeah. Yes, they keep talking about it, like, and again, they only say it really that one time where she has at the end where she has to filibuster. My mind, like, my mind went to Harriet Jones because she's introduced in Aliens of London and she just wants to make an amendment about cottage hospitals yes. and then gets mm. foisted into this yep. political position. Yep. So I figured uh, they were sort of paralleling that. Mm-hmm. But man, if that is it, I'm going to ask Rob, you know, I'll miss you. Yeah. No, please do. Because she, she literally said, or uh, they literally say they're in the filibuster scene. that It's something to do with the bathing policies. She's like, or they... Uh, say, you know, we, we won these rights and I'm like, well, the right to be there is probably what she's talking about, like on ship, but it's a, it's a leisure cruiser and it's about bathing. So I'm like, yeah. that has to be what it is. How did I miss a dick joke? I dick know, jokes are my the, thing. This is the thing. It's there in plain sight, but they never say the joke. It's a lovely subtle joke though, isn't it? And it's, yeah. it just, there's so much going on in this because like you say, it's, it's a really clever political satire. Yep. That gets you gets you riled up and makes you think about things. But there's so much fun in it as well. And I think there's yep. a joke, there's a dig at Star Wars, I think, in there when um when the doctor's encouraging Alpha Centauri to filibuster, doesn't he say something like, um, just say just go on about something boring like taxation of trade? Oh yeah. <laughs> Is that the Phantom Menace? That's a big <laughs> Phantom Menace. That's exactly the Phantom Menace. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And I just love from minute one, he starts calling uh, Alpha Centauri AC. Yeah. There's just like some, there's he, he, like there's that such, relationship such a was gorgeous between the two of them. Yeah. yeah, and again, Eccleston coming in and getting instant rapport with Jane Goddard. And this is how you bring back a classic uh, monster creature or whatever. Like in a in a way that makes sense, you know, it's not just to bring them here. Well, we're doing a prequel, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. So, so this is this is why she didn't go into politics and why mm-hmm. she did become a delegate of the Galactic Federation. Mm-hmm. I thought it was lovely that that mm-hmm. whole thing and just how how she grew in confidence throughout the story. And by the end, I'm punching the air because the mm-hmm. first time she tries to give a speech, and that's me standing up in front of people, I just can't do it. And I, <laughs> you sort of mumble into your hands and you get all embarrassed. And then at the end, when she's sort of angry and defiant and mm-hmm. saying, no, I'm going to make my point, you know, we're going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's wonderful. Brilliant. I, I like the way it's sort of a, a marriage of the third and ninth Doctor eras as well, because you've mm. got obviously the ice warriors but the ice warriors is as good as there's a mention of acturus from the curse of peladon mm-hmm. but then you've also got representatives from balhoon mm-hmm. and it mentions that the previous candidate was a raxa calica yes phalopatorian well done so it's um are you it's, trying it's to like say raxa corico phalopatorian raxa corico phalopatorian that's the one yeah. <laughs> but i think the previous candidate had been from ursa minor the one that got murdered is that Hitchhikers? Yeah. It might be. I think Ursa uh, Minor is one of the book excerpts from Hitchhikers. 
Uh, well, the thing, the other thing I was thinking was um, the villain is called Bellatrix Vega, but it's Vega's Harry Potter, in Mon- isn't it? <laughs> uh, but well, yes, Bellatrix is the strange in Harry Potter, but Vega is is the minor character, oh, right. like minor Nixon. as in um, not not as in a small character, but the minor, minor. alien in yeah <laughs> in, in the Monster yeah. of Peladon. But I don't mm-hmm. think there was any link between the two because mm-hmm. Vega in that one was a goodie. And from mm. the planet Vega, I think was was called that uh, for that reason. Well, there again, like this is how you do references to other things. Like yeah. it's mm. it's just there. Like it's part of the scenery. It's not you're not putting a lampshade on it and say, "Looking how clever we are," mm. or "Look, here's something you remember from the past." Rob said that this this was one of his favorite scripts to write, and you can really see he's enjoying yeah. writing this. I want to say a word for the soundscape in this as well, because it is trying to paint a picture of it, like an entire city and a courtroom and all of this car chases, all of it's mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. really brilliantly done and a terrific score again as well. Like this one, I was there. I was there in that city with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite things about this, and we sort of gestured toward it a little bit is the, it's sort of the reversal of expectations, like, because it's usually the doctor who rocks up and tries to overthrow a civilization here. You know, it is Bellatrix Vega, which I mean, my, for my money, I mean, this is just a little aside. There have been like three Bellatrixes in like the last five box sets that I've listened to. So it's just a little bit of an overused name. There was one in the, in the most recent eighth doctor set. Are they uh, always evil? Yes. Well, oh, I mean, it makes good. sense. Bellatrix is an evil sounding name. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but here, like, you know, not only is it, she's the one who's trying to overthrow the government, she's the one who's trying to like replace the replace the ruling system. Um, but the other thing that which is for me the most troubling is that all of her assessments, as sort of crude and vulgar as they are, she's right every time. Like everything she's saying is practically correct, yeah. you know, and functionally correct. And it's the doctor who is idealistic and uh, 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 super hopeful. And you know, she even calls him out on it several times. She's like. You know, you're 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 betting on the people being, you know, voting in their own interests. You know, she's like he's basically, and he says it. He's like, you know, you're trying to get the turkeys to vote for Thanksgiving, and mm. you know, it is. You know, you can again mobilize voting blocks to vote against their own interests. They do it all the time, and they make it so that I mean, here in North Carolina, we just had a a ruling the other day, or not even a ruling because they've completely made that impossible. The North Carolina GOP, the the Republican Party, has gerrymandered our voting districts to the point where it will be impossible for the next at least five years for Democrats to have any power in the state house. Like they have made it so that they have engineered the districts so that you cannot elect Democrat Democratic uh, 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 representatives. So, like you know, uh, 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 the fact that uh, you know you can get. By, by catchphrases, you know, the, the GOP is really good at having three-word slogans that they can get their base riled up with. And, like, you know, again, if you can inspire your voting block to do what you want, then, like she says, she's right again. And this is the gerrymandering thing. She's like, after this election, they won't have to vote ever again. Yeah. You know, that is... It's utterly Machiavellian, isn't it? Because it's yep. all done in plain sight as yep. well. Yep. Yep. But slowly, they do it a bit at a time, mm. and you, then you see the picture, and it's absolutely horrific. She says as well, at one point, the people want easy answers to difficult problems. I've yep. heard conservative MPs saying that. Yeah. You know? yep. And actually, I don't think that's wrong. I think the people as a whole, I don't know, COVID hits, they want easy answers yep. to that terrible problem. 
Um, And the doctor goes, you don't think much of people, do you? Because obviously the doctor's always got this great thing about humanity. He's very optimistic about it. But actually, I don't know, maybe plonk him down in (laughs) this century now. He might change his mind a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, quiet. <laughs> it's just it gets it gets real. Like, and this is the thing is like the personal. I was gonna say this earlier. It's like when when in the behind the scenes they're talking about not, you know, not trying to be political. You know, the personal and it, this is something you learn in I learned in grad school day one, and something comes up all the time is like the personal is political. Like you can't you can't be you can't look like me. You can't have brown skin in America and not be political it's what the it's what those the 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 crazy doctor who people when they're like oh doctor who's woke because there's a black person on there or because you've got Mm -hmm. a south asian companion like i'm i'm not political because i exist you know yeah it's this horrible idea that that it would be normal only to have white characters and that's just that's just normal and anything else is pushing some kind of political agenda and it's it's absolutely ridiculous it's just representation and I do wonder diversity in it, which sometimes it's how the agendas um, presented, because I think something like Orphan Fifty Five, which I like a lot, but the mm. bit at the end where the doctor's basically looking at the screen and going, "Oh, are you are you watching me? Right, yeah. take care of your world you've got and sort it out. You know, otherwise you're going to end up like this." People yeah. found that a bit on the nose. Whereas if you if you slip it into a script like this, which is very funny and really enjoyable, listen, and you've got Jane Usher who is clearly having the best time of anybody yeah. with yeah. this script because she is so insanely over the top. But in the, I mean, you know me, Mark, I love her camp over the top villain. Mm-hmm. So the second she opened her mouth, and you know he's going, "You're going to be pretty good in politics," and she's going, "Yes, I am, aren't I?" You know, oh, I'm going to love this. I and think... the hero is a giant green alien with one eye. Like, how over the top can you be? And yeah. like, but you don't. You take it for granted, which is phenomenal. Like, this is the most literally alien thing in the in the entire box set. And you know, this is the character. This is our identif- This is our sympathetic, empathetic identification character. Like, we're on her. We're on their side. And that is that's extraordinary too. It's a great way to. It's a great way to do this to tell yeah, this yeah. story to use a creature that we're all familiar with that we have you know nostalgic feelings for and then remind you that this is an alien and that this is not only an alien but it's a startling looking alien who is you know could be president of the galaxy like that's incredible it's incredible it's amazing so interesting that you say that um bricks was trying to shy away from suggesting that this story had an agenda in the special features and you know what right you know yeah we could knock out another 15 box sets with a load of daleks screaming and sonic screwdrivers wearing this is so much more interesting than that yeah yeah that that, that it does it does sort of stir something up in you but give you a good time as well Mm -hmm. and it shares some dna with the purity uh box sets for the sixth doctor as well which is which has covered some some similar sort of ground of the, the kind of rise of, of, of fascism and how kind of bad ideology basically kind of creeps in and, and how it's used. And, and that's, that's... I only have, that first, I only have the like. first set there, so I might have to invest in the rest oh, of it. It just gets better and better, yeah. that, that series. There's a confrontation between the sixth Doctor and the main villain towards mm. the end of the second set where he calls her out on all of her racist, sexist, ableist views. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best scenes Big Finish have yeah. ever done. And it's all the better for being played quite quietly as well. But mm-hmm. I'd say the difference between the two is this is a little more 
pantomimic. Yep. It's got it's lots broader. of silly yeah. voices in it. And things. Yep. I was mm. getting, you know, in those scenes in the in the debating chamber, I was getting sort of Dalek Master Plan vibes with those silly alien voices, you know, of the mm. all the members of the Galactic Powers. Um, I kept whereas... imagining the, the 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 speaker of the speaker of the house or whatever the guy with the order. I I don't know why. Yeah. I imagined it being like a giant lizard wearing a powdered wig. I don't know why, but like <laughs> again, it's just that image of like this is so silly. You know the one that sort of looks like a bush with hands in Dalek Mastermind. I kept seeing him because the voice sound is so similar. <laughs> whereas you know, like the purity set, a lot of it's played. It's still science fiction. It's still quirky, but a lot of it's played dramatically it's darker in tone isn't it mm. harder edged yeah. one of the best things they've done for, for ages i think yeah i think it's i think it's brilliant and i don't want to come then, across with this story that i'm just angry at everything or like uh, uh really angry about politics or the world at large because there is a lot of funny stuff in here and my yeah. the, the thing that i find the funniest aside from the again the galactic Lido policy and I, I do want to know what that is i do want to know what he's talking about <laughs> i'll find out sure, all right i'll let I, you know my theory again is that it's about nude bathing uh which is hilarious uh but the other thing that i found absolutely hilarious that no one talks about at all is in the behind the scenes or in the uh, uh the play itself is that an ice lord can go incognito yeah, like yeah. I'm just like dying of laughter because they meet in like a car park and I'm like how and he's can... wearing a hat. Yeah, he's yeah. wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> I just find that, that the absurdity of that is so that is so hilarious to me. It's so yeah. funny. Uh, when the finished big podcast I do, we've been listening to the Judge Dread audios, which they did right back in the early days of Big Finish, but like crazy fun, creative, funny. Um, very hugely immersive sort of science fiction world. And I was whinging on in that one, because obviously I'm listening to Once in the Future alongside those. And I'm going, oh, why can't Big Finish do this anymore? You know, this is so fun. It's so cool. And then this started just like one of those Judge Dredd ones with all the media reporting on everything in a really fun, quirky way. And then we went to the cityscape and we had all the sound effects coming in and then all the colourful, crazy... I was like, oh my God, I just need to keep opening my mouth on these things. And they keep happening, you know. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a it's a fully rounded story. This it sort of ticks every box: entertaining, political. It's got a point to make. It's a good character drama. Um, you've got really fun aliens in it as well. Great jokes, just on every level. I could sort of critic. Uh, what am I trying to say? Criticize this. Mm-hmm. It scores. There's a musical joke in it as well for the score. I think it's in like track six or seven. It's where he has the meeting. I think it may be where he's on the phone with um, the Ice Lord. And again, the idea that the Ice Lord can even hide his voice, I find it just <laughs> a completely absurd. Yeah. But then he hangs up or he disappears or whatever. Maybe he's at the window or whatever and disappears. And then uh, Eccleston says, all right, you know, you give Batman a run for his money. And then the score goes, da 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 And I'm like, they cribbed that from the, like, Batman, like, the animated series theme song. Like, the notes are exactly the same. And I'm like, that is a uh... Batman joke. It's a very funny joke. But it's just, it's so subtle. Like, it's just like, da 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 And I'm like, oh, you did not just make a Batman, uh, like, score joke. That is, that's, that is next level. Just about what you said about picturing the characters, the 
the civil servos, which again is, is a nice play on words from civil servant, but I pictured them as the servo robots from the wheeling space as well. Those kind of uh, boxy, <laughs> trundling things uh, kind of going around the uh, about the, the government buildings. I'd love to see this one. I would absolutely love yes. to be able to see it. Oh, if they could animate this one, mm. that would that would be perfect. Yeah. Could we say a word as well for somebody I don't think we, any of us have mentioned yet, even though we've lauded all three stories, and that's director Helen Goldwyn, who, yes. who is one of the biggest talents that Big Finish has these days. If her name is on a release, you can at least be guaranteed it's an entertaining listen. If it's a fantastic yeah. script as well, it's going to be gold. And this is three great scripts. And I think she just acquits herself brilliantly. Yeah, 100%. And I don't know how involved she is. I'm, I assume that the directors here are, are really involved in the casting. Um, yeah, because so. Because, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it makes a difference. It really makes a huge difference. If you listen to the, uh, the one that me and Ross did on Gallifrey's Most Wanted for Respond to All Calls, we definitely shout her out because she has clearly, by this point, and it comes up in the behind the scenes of this box set, de- developed a, a really good working relationship and rapport with Eccleston and I feel like Mm -hmm. as much as the lead actor sets the tone I feel like the director sets the meta tone and so like the fact that she is she is that familiar with him that he is that comfortable working with her now uh I I feel like that is only to the benefit of of the entire the entire set when I recently um did an interview with Lisa Bauman we asked her to detail what take a release and as a director, take us through the process from the very start to the very end. And we figured we'd get a couple of minutes out of it. No, no, no. She gave us 15 minutes. She went through getting the script to hiring the actors and how they hire the actors as well, to recording on the day, to all the post-production work afterwards. Like The director is involved in every single stage of these things. So they're stamped all over it. So we're saying great things about these releases. We're yeah. effectively saying great things about Goldwyn. Goldwyn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What a star, an absolute star. The other thing I really liked, it's slightly different in this one to, I think, most of the other Ninth Doctor stories, is how the Doctor enters the story. In most of them, he just turns up and has to find out where he is. I know the first one we, we, we spoke to was slight, uh, we spoke about slightly different because he, he contacts the, the, the other character out of the blue. But this one, he's seen uh, sort of another timeline where the Federation has become a brutal dictatorship and, and wants to change that. So it's much more like he's on a mission here, isn't it? Um, I pictured it a bit. I'm going to mention another uh, Stephen Moffat era story that you're probably going to hate, Joe, but in Kill the Moon. Oh, I love Kill the Moon. What are you talking about? Oh, brilliant. Perfect. But in Kill the Moon and in uh, Fires of Pompeii, when the Doctor displays that ability to sort of see different timelines, I kind of pictured it like that, that he'd he'd had this real sense that this was a a nexus point answer the second question on your exam all right not the first the second (laughs) paul mcgann could do it as well do you remember (laughs) yes um and then yes and then coming in obviously he already already knows that alpha centauri is is you know an incorruptible uh fantastic politician and and going in and, and undercover like that it's it's a real different modus operandi for his doctor but i thought it worked really really well he knows as well that alf centauri isn't going to have that role because obviously he's met alf centauri as the yeah. third doctor as a diplomat but i remember i actually said out loud because all the others you're right the the doctor's intro into the story was very well set up i was like why is he doing this and i remember i just i sort of went i said out loud 
why is the doctor involved in this story and almost on cue i've got to keep talking you know everything keeps coming true as soon as i say it he said yeah I've, i've seen you know this other timeline where and let's be honest we've all seen that as well i mean we were just on the brink of pushing the button i think during trump's turn we were all having flashes to a very miserable future. Which is, again, the terrifying thing is that, you know, those four years, he did so much damage. He did so much damage. And I feel like he, the, the, the horrible thing about it is that he didn't do as much as he could have. Yeah. And that is what is terrifying is that if he gets another go, I am just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not very hopeful. I'm not very hopeful. I, I would say I've got a spare room. Come over here and stay with me. But unfortunately, we've got the Conservatives in charge over here, so you wouldn't be in any better of a situation. We're, yeah, we're shit out of luck wherever we go. Uh, it's looking yeah. like the numbers are swinging in the other direction now, if they ever let us have an election. So, yeah. Never underestimate the stupidity of the public, though. Yeah, let's keep yeah. coming back to that point. Yeah. That's, my, uh, that's my kind of takeaway. I mean, I'll, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic, but I'll believe it when I see it. The last, last thing I was going to say about this story is obviously the title Run is a double meaning. It's kind of running for office, but also it's the first word that we ever hear the Ninth Doctor say on screen, isn't it? Ah, so it's yeah. a nice tie into that as well. I do like a nice, simple title, you know. I don't like these long, pretentious, you know, Tolstoy quotes and things like that. <laughs> Just a single word. That's all I need. But it definitely is one of the, the things that there is to be optimistic around here. I mean, aside from the fact, aside from, uh, aside from, you know, the fact that the, the districts are gerrymandered and, like, you know, the, that the Republicans can, can marshal their base without, you know, any any particular, you know, uh, uh, um, positive goal in mind. Like, that they're, the last five or six years has seen such an uptick in young people, young people of color, young women here in the States running for political office, not at the, not only at the at the national level, which is obviously going to get the most press, but at the local level, which is where the change is needed the most. And I am very, very encouraged by that. You know, we may not see the the benefits or the outcomes from that, you know, for the next five, ten years, but they're coming. And I, that is very encouraging to me. That's a thing, like, again, that, that the, the title is, again, it's not only a... a, a a, a, a verb and the first thing that, that the doctor says, but it's also, it's an encouragement. You know, it's telling people get involved, yeah. which is, I mean, that's, again, that's such a good thing. And that's, you know, for me, I, I don't know that travel and hope is necessarily the title I would give to this sequence of stories, but, uh, um, you know, there is that, that sense of that, that uplift that each of these stories gives me, mm. which is, it's, it's really, it's, it's incredible to like have a, you know, uh, a science fiction series, you know, three stories that come out and you, you hear them and it makes you want to be better. It makes you feel like you can do better. It makes you feel like you can be more. It's, it's mm-hmm. remarkable. It's three stories as well that give us happy endings or optimistic endings without giving us any easy answers as well. Yeah. And that's clever. It's rare in these sets to have three science fiction stories, I think, isn't it? I think in a lot of these sets, they have the historical um, a modern day Earth and a, and a science fiction future set or, or alien planet set one. But they've 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 all gone kind of science fiction capitalist dystopia, as I was saying earlier, haven't they? But it it shows where you can still find hope and connection with other people and. 
What's interesting though there is in the first one, it wasn't really the science fiction that thrilled me. It was the character work. In the second Mm -hmm. one, it wasn't the science fiction that thrilled me. It was the murder mystery plot. And in the third one, it wasn't the science fiction that interested me. It was the politics. Mm. So the the science fiction is just basically the set design for all this other stuff to take place in. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to shake it up as well, because I suppose if you do fall into that past, future, contemporary thing, people know what to expect. Someone's going to pick this up and go, oh, they're doing something different. And again, it's amazing that it's, you know, that in each story that there are science fiction trappings, but that's not, it's not what you're focused on. You know, it's, it's, it just gives, it brings you back to the character work and the, the script writing and the interactions and the relationships that are developed between the characters. Cause that first story, you know, uh, uh, below there, I mean, it could be set. I mean, it could be the signalman. It could be set in mm. 19th century England. Mm. You know, there's no reason it couldn't be, you know, at, you know, the uh, 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 Mark's insurance company or like whatever. I mean, it doesn't the setting doesn't fundamentally fundamentally affect how the story takes place. And, yeah, there's some science fiction gobbledygook that they say along the way. But, again, you know what they're talking about. Like it's, you know, this is another it's one of the things that we really haven't touched on in that first story is that it's, you know, not only all the things that we already said it was, but it's about public it's about public resources. It's about who owns, you know, the uh, uh, who owns the gas lines, who owns electricity. Is it publicly funded? Is it private corporations? Like, you know, uh, uh, who has access and who has control over infrastructure? You know, that's that's a weird thing to write a science fiction tale about. Is like infrastructure is broken down. Like the the fact that the corporations are doing as little as they can to maintain. A, a, a vital piece of infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, that alone is something worth remarking on. But if you're yeah. if you're listening to three, you know, entertaining Doctor Who stories, and you're thinking about the world around you as well, and what's wrong with it, and maybe how you can make a difference, I'll say this: this set's doing something really good. I just wanted to say um, before we out, thank you very much for asking me onto this one in particular, because to say that I was at my wits end with modern day big finish. I don't know if either of you have heard my once and future instant (laughs) finishes on YouTube, but effectively it's me screaming into a camera for 10 minutes going, this isn't good enough. I want a refund. Um, and this was about as far from it, it addressed every complaint that I had. I go listen to it. I'm, I'm saying, you know, I want the stories to have a point. I want these stories to have genuine character interaction. I want the actors to be challenged. You know, I want the productions to be simplified, but more atmospheric because of it. And all of these stories, they're doing all of that. So more of this, please. <laughs> and that is something I can definitely say to the listeners out there. And to you, Joe, but, uh, since you said you're not a, a particularly a, a, a big follower here of this particular range, is that that's every set. That's every mm. set for the ninth doctor. Yeah, that is, impression. it's it's really it's really wonderful. Like I really really look forward to these sets because you know the the variety is going to be. You're going to get three completely different stories every time out. You're going to get a nice mixture of social commentary, political uh, machination, uh, uh, character work, like grab bag you know find yourself a, one of those little magnetic uh, uh poetry bags and thra- t- toss out three words and you could like you can be guaranteed that if those are the three words that are the center of these three stories that you're going to get an incredible thing that is centered around that idea trouble is normally the grab bag is just full of other ranges <laughs> and they pull things out and go right 
We'll have the Corks, River Song, Jackie Tyler. Go on, write the script, you know. And you must think that they're there going, oh, fuck, how am I going to make this work? Jesus Christ. <laughs> they're going to crucify me. But, you know, it's it's money. You take the job, don't you? Yes, but I can also uh, uh, say good things since uh, this set concludes with uh, Alpha Centauri and the Ice, Ice Warrior story. Uh, that Big Finish, to my to my experience, have not put out a bad Peladon story. I think all of their Peladon stuff. They have a. I think there's a Companion Chronicle. I feel like there's a Fifth Doctor story that's like Bride of Peladon, and then the yeah. Peladon box set they put out a couple of is is brilliant. It's like yeah. uh, you know, big picture meta look at the planet of Peladon over i don't know maybe three thousand years like one of the like a story like every six or seven hundred years where a different doctor mm. perches up and like it's sort of that uh uh what's that where the the fourth doctor shows sarah jane like the future of earth i can't remember is that in the pyramids of mars? mars yeah uh or or in the uh orson pink one with the 12th doctor where he takes him to the end of the universe oh uh, listen mm-hmm or the eleventh Doctor one, where he's he goes through. And that's Hyde too, I think, right? Isn't it where he's yeah. he opens the door every few hundred years to see what's going on? Like you get that sense of what does a what what does what does the planet's history look like? But you get that with a different planet. It, that is uh, that's quite lovely as well. But it's you know also has that science fiction tint of this is you know it's not only a different planet's history. It's also obviously what 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 we could be going through as well. So that Peladon box set is. I figured, you know, that you was a fan of Peladon because I'd taken a nap and I woke up to a message in our threads and I was like, oh, it appears that someone sent me a drawing of a massive cock. <laughs> and then I rubbed the sleep out of my eyes and I realised it was a picture of Alpha Centauri. I was like, oh, that's nice. You know? <laughs> it's not uncommon. So, you know, you just... <laughs> I must get that set, though. It sounds great. Sorry, Mark. I'm being very naughty here. <laughs> But yeah, I like to make a little social media clip, and I, I, I like painting, so I think I might do a... That's what the thing was about, is like, I might do a time-lapse, a new, a new painting of Alpha Centauri. For if you want a picture of a massive <laughs> cock, just draw a picture of my face. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. On that bombshell... <laughs> now that we've blown our load about this box set... <laughs> <laughs> Greyhound to trap one. Greyhound to trap one. How do you read me? Over. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to these stories and and take the time to record me to talk about them. It's been a real pleasure. They are three absolutely fascinating, entertaining, fabulous stories. I, I recommend. Uh, I mean, I say recommend. Hopefully, you've already listened to them before you listen to this podcast. Yeah, you're, uh, you ain't going to get much fun out of them otherwise. I forgot, <laughs> yeah, I forgot to put a spoiler warning at the beginning, but I'll make sure I put that in in the show notes. Just like to let our listeners know where else they can find you online, Melvin. Uh, so I am at uh, Kittenry, K I T T E N R Y, on Twitter. Uh, I am Melvin two underscores Pena P E N A on Instagram and Blue Sky. And uh, yeah, I'm all I'm all around. You know, you search my name, you'll find me. Fantastic, Angel. Uh, oh, what's my Twitter handle? I'm Doc Oho forty four on Twitter. 
I think I'm just Doc Ho on Instagram. Um, do you want me to do the podcast? Um, I, could yeah, be a, I could be a while. <laughs> um, uh, okay um the now completed nine one be praises out there which i do with my friend jack shanahan uh hamster with a blunt pen knife uh commentary podcast which i do with everybody including mark when you're coming back on stop shirking me come on whenever you want me oh, i've been waiting <laughs> for you to say that for years um finish big which is a big finish podcast which i do with my other half and untitled star trek project which i do with my very good friend nathan bottomley and finally bite me which i do which is a buffy podcast which i do with martin havel from bad wolf so um, i'm a busy boy there's a lot of me out there i need to get a turn on hamster at some point but not, i don't want to do the book club because i don't like reading Oh well, come and come and do the other ones. Come on! Well, this is very indulgent organizing our social schedules now during the episode. Uh, I also gotta say, I love Untitled Star Trek Project, and I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Like the moment I saw the Lower Decks Strange New Worlds crossover, I'm like, y'all need to do a special episode because I yeah. need I need to know your thoughts on that. I need it. I need it. It's uh, that's a lot of fun to do that one. Sorry, man. Sorry. No, it's up. Uh, so I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky is at Quark McMalice. You can follow the podcast at Trap1 underscore on Twitter and just at Trap1 on Blue Sky. And you can also hear me at the moment on the new series of Maximum Power, which has just started mm. and um, we're running through Series C at the moment. So, so that's a lot of fun as well. I love your perspective on Blake 7, you know, because you're a complete newbie to it, aren't you? Yeah, I'm very, very spoiler phobic around Blake Seven because of this. Like more so even than like modern stuff like The Mandalorian. Um, I will just even this like a forty year old TV show and I just just studiously avoid any spoilers so that I can go in and I only watch up to the episode I'm talking about. So so well, yeah, great, it's, it's, you know, because they're they're all there um giving, you know, like um intelligent critiques on this bit of old tat that came out in the 70s <laughs> and then you come in with a dry one-liner which makes me fucking howl honestly you're brilliant on that thank you very much that's it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to do you can find all the previous episodes of trap one at trap one.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to like and subscribe thanks for listening goodbye <laughs> Thank you.